And we're all going to talk like this out of the sides of our mouths. Yeah. That's how we got to talk. We're scene. talking about Miller's Crossing. Look, man, I'm on top of it. Anybody ever, else, else seen White Heat? Jimmy Cagney? Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, and especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So, once again, no smoking in this theater. Gabriel Byrne is like he is Irish. Irish. That's his natural yeah. accent. So he did it. He did an incredibly uh, good job of not doing a good job of having an Irish accent. <laughs> not, well, or you could say instead of a disappearing Irish accent, it was a continually appearing non-Irish American accent. accent. It was American a quantum accent. state of accenting. I, but like, I wasn't the only one who noticed that, right? Like, no, he that definitely. Was, yeah. Depending on, on the context and who he was speaking to, it was different. And maybe that's a point. But like, Ooh, there was that is a point. There was I read on the Wikipedia page, which is where I got all my information about everybody and everything. Shout out to Wikipedia. Shout, shout out to Wikipedia. Wikipedia. Shout out to the Trilon. Does the Trilon have a Wikipedia? And shout page? out to the Trilon. We're gonna I don't find know. Out. We're going to find out. Fuck and you, James Woods. Create it. Um, but on the Wikipedia page, apparently the part originally called for him to have like a not an Irish accent, and uh, but then they he just couldn't they, help it. But <laughs> <laughs> actually, that was that was far more like uh, it's my Colin birthright. <laughs> Um, Gabriel Byrne, I didn't see you show up. Uh, Trilon does have a Wikipedia page. Nice. We're about to make yeah, that. Yeah, XPLODE. <laughs> uh, but that they asked him to not you know, like use his natural Irish accent, and uh, he said, I think that my lines fit that better, and they were convinced after he was like, after they did some screen tests, they're like, yeah, you're right. So it's really bizarre to me that his accent still doesn't hold super well in this movie. Well, and I mean, also, like, this is about... Irish and Italian mobs, like so. It is weird that they were like, "Don't have your Irish hey, accent." Hey, be American. Yeah. It's like, hey, uh, Liam Neeson, drop the accent. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's like, well, when is this movie set? The thirties. Liam Neeson, Prohibition? Wolf. Yeah, yeah, Wolf guy sucks. Take that guy behind the barn. I'd have. Wow, what? You, you you shoot lame animals behind the barn. Oh, thank you for no. I, yeah. I got what you were saying. Why are you trying okay. to fuck Liam Neeson behind his barn? <laughs> Holy Christ! I shoot him with my seed. <laughs> I was going to say I felt the disappearing accent a lot more frequently with Albert Finney, but it seems like a weird time to bring that up now. Albert Finney, Albert Skinny. <laughs> That's the skinny on that guy. That is the. Thank you very much for listening Holy to Try Love. Uh, very, a, a very literal roundtable. <laughs> <laughs> very literal roundtable podcast uh, where we talk about movies that we saw at the Trilon. I am Jason. I'm Cody. I'm Harry. Uh, we have once again, I'm going to cut him off. We have once again a uh, very special guest with us today. Uh, his name is. His name is Eric. He's a very special guest. <laughs> He's a very special very boy. Special guest. <laughs> he made Did it back it? for another it's one, boys. Eric, I understand you do radio work too. Uh, yeah. Um, so our the college I'm at, Winona State, has a uh, radio station, and I've been on the air there for about a year or so now. Nice. And for uh, the late shift. The late shift. Check indeed. it out, folks. And what have you learned about radio work? Um, a lot. I, I mean, like. 
boy, it's hard to distill that. Um, I mean, for one thing, not getting nervous in front of a microphone. Mm-hmm. Um, and you I do can, not look nervous. And I'm only sweating skills. a couple and, of buckets. And I can thank my, my stellar coach for that who... Oh, you're welcome, man. I'm so flattered. <laughs> Harry is not how I'd normally pronounce Caleb, but okay. Um, <laughs> and he basically just kind of first time ever showed us how to use the stuff for like 45 minutes and then was like, okay, go do it. And like, oh, that's not coaching. Okay. That's abuse. Yeah, I was going to say, okay, I'm now all of a sudden broadcasting to hundreds of people I don't actually know. <laughs> and it took like 45 minutes for my heart rate to reset. And so I was like, after that, it was all uphill. Um, but in, in a way, what it's taught me and, you know, especially with the fun I've had on here on the first episode, um, I would much prefer podcasting to radio, honestly. And it's for three reasons. One is because timing. Here, we we just get to we just get to do anytime our... we want. It's great. <laughs> anytime you want, and it is great. Whereas uh, in radio, you <laughs> you have to make sure like everything lines up because you've got a, a clock that you have to follow. So you've got certain times where you need to play your PSAs, your promos, do your weather, all that stuff. Let's keep them hungry real quick. I'm going to share you a story about and remember your third point um, mm. or second point. Second point. point. Yep. Timing was the first one, and timing is everything. Timing. There was a story uh, that I want they wanted to tell about. Um, I, I worked at uh, the radio station at my college campus, uh, and it had a, probably a significantly smaller audience than yours does. But it was like well regarded at, at uh, in in the greater Angola, Indiana metropolitan area. Um, and hey, don't get too big of a head now. Come on, <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, I'm going to leave you all the way behind me. Um, <laughs> but there was one time when I was uh, I wasn't hosting anything. I was just snipping between airplay and the football game that was going on and uh we didn't have any like back channels with anybody it was me and the uh, announcer who was at the game and i was just to listen for like and we'll be right back after this or you Mm. know more highlights after and then i would have to cut in and i don't know remember what i was doing i was fucking around on my phone and i missed it and it was like (laughs) maybe 10 seconds of silence and he's like live on air to like a lot of people listen to these football games because they're college football games right Jason? <laughs> Jason Daphnis? Because he knew my name. He like, and Your then social af- security number is... <laughs> and then afterward, when he came back from, from the thing, you know, no, as normal, I cut back in and I was like super, I was wired from that point on. But then right, the right. next break, he's like, everybody give a hand to Jason Daphnis, who's in the booth oh today. Oh my God. With oh WEX. No. And he just put me on full oh ass. Oh my God. That's Brutal. Oh, and I, I never met this person. Obviously, he's a sports announcer guy. He was like a professional. I was an intern. But he was like, I'm sure that externally it must have appeared as though like, oh, he's just trying to give a shout out to the guy in the booth. But no like, way, dude. He was trying to oh, fucking put dude, you on blast. Do you want to put him on blast for anything I mean, right now? I, I, say, remember his guy? Name. I was going to say, that asshole was putting you on blast. <laughs> but that was that was a low point in my life and yeah, my career. <laughs> that's fair. Uh, we have another radio person, Emily uh Regular Trilove contributor uh, was a Radio K host for a while. That's right. I didn't know she hosted. Yep. I knew she worked. I believe there. so. Yeah, I nice. think I think that's right. I didn't listen to Radio K as often as I should. Have. We, yeah. Shout can out to we, the University of Minnesota. Can we be called a supergroup if we have at least three people with like pretty extensive radio? Experience? I've always thought of us as a supergroup <laughs> of super friends. <laughs> that's right, everyone. <laughs> Anytime you want. <laughs> Hit it! Hit it! Ah! Uh, so today we're going to be talking about... Wait, wait, the, first, oh, the second sorry, the two second points. And third. There's two points. Um, so the sec- Timing. 
<laughs> so the first one was timing. Uh, the second point has to do with how radio is a live medium, and this is not live. Oh, we're broadcasting right now. <laughs> well, all right, sorry. All 25 followers. Sorry about those other F-bombs, FCC. Uh, we'll talk to you later. F-U-C-C. We're like, fuck C-C. <clears throat> carrot, carrot cake. The other thing I love about podcasting is how much... Uh, how you're not, like, on the live client, on like, you are live to the world, because uh, as what was a fun experience for me last week when I had to pop on, um, I was playing some music, I found this CD, I was like, oh, this looks interesting, I'm going to play this one, and normally we have a person who screens all the music and says whether you can play this one or not. So I see this song, and I'm like, okay, this is fine for me to play. I put the song in the CD tray, I'm enjoying the song, it's uh, the artist LPF, I don't know if anybody's heard of them. Um, Little Big Flannet? Mm, well, that would be LBP. Um, but anyways, the song was called I, Tiger. And at, we were fine for a while. Everything's going by. I'm like, oh, this is a cool song. And then all of a sudden, like, she says, fuck, like, twice, I think, somewhere oh, in there. Oh. Like, right towards the end of the song. And I, like, froze up for a Loudly, second. Loudly? Like, audibly? Yeah, was, yeah, like, audibly. Yeah. And I, you, you listen to this? Yeah, I was listening. And I, I also heard it. <laughs> well, so and I it's funny, because I texted him after this happened. I was like... Because I was, like, starting to freak out at this point. I was like, um, Harry, did did the woman in the song just drop the F-bomb? Did it sound yeah, like uh, that, dude? And he's like, yeah, she I really... I was just like, uh, uh yeah, dude. <laughs> now, how, does, how, does, how does this decrescent? Is it, like, as the music's fading out, she just screams, fuck! <laughs> fuck! No. <laughs> I think that's how they punctuate all their songs. <laughs> that would have been even It's on better. the downbeat. No, it was, just, it was just part of the lyrics. Like, she was just... I don't remember exactly what the lyrics were, but she was expressing mm -hmm. that towards something. Anger or yeah, satisfaction. Yeah, yeah. And I heard that, and as soon as I confirmed with Harry <laughs> that she had said that, I was, like, just white as a sheet. And the song <laughs> ended, and I had to just be like, uh, that was LPF with I, Tiger. Uh, after the break, we're going to be talking about this. And, like... <laughs> <laughs> and, and so here in the podcast, I don't have to deal with that pressure. If we couldn't for some reason say that, we could just edit it out. But but that also ties in nicely to the third segment, which is fuck the FCC. <laughs> yeah. Because here I can say uh, whatever I want, and I won't get hundreds of thousand dollars fine or whatever right. it is. Pirate like, radio. You won't have the tape cut out, and then all of a sudden the host overlord of Trilove pop in and be like, dot, 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 Jason? I like that you enunciated the dots like we were playing a Final Fantasy game. My name is Cody Narvison. I don't play a lot of video games, so that reference is lost on me. You play video games where there's text, where there's text on screen, though, and you have to skip through the the silence that's uh, denoted I only, by. I only play the video games where they say beat, beat, beat. It's, yeah, it's well, you know, next level. To, to, <laughs> to flex that I am a, a trial of listener, Hell if yeah. I'm remembering correctly, in the Detective Pikachu episode, you mentioned playing Pokemon a lot. <gasps> that is one of maybe one and a half to two video games. There's a lot. But, called out, Cody. <laughs> but there's a lot of text dialogue that happens, and I'm sure there's ellipses there. And a lot of ellipses when you're evolving a Pokemon, because it's like, wait, 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 write you. You got to fucking write you. <laughs> Timing. Hit it. <laughs> I would I would love to play the Jason version of this game. He's like, congrats, you got a fucking riot you. <laughs> I bet you feel really smart now. <laughs> you haven't feel said good about this fucking Flareon, you dipshit. You haven't said anything to your rival in a little bit. Is there like any like you know uh, strife that you would like to flesh out right now in front of everybody? As I'm taking a sip of coffee. 
Ah, God. Uh, today we're going to be talking about Miller's Miller's Crossing, uh, 1990 Joel and Ethan Cohen film. We just got done talking about their 1987 sophomore movie. What is this then? Is this a junior movie? It would be a junior movie, but junior you cannot movie. use that metaphor past four. Like I was going to say past two. Super I don't senior, super duper senior. Su- is movie cum laude. Super duper, uber senior. Super duper double secret probation senior. If Harry keeps going, can you like underlay this with, with some like hip music? Duper uber Royalty double free. secret probation senior. Super duper uber double secret probation omni senior. Omni. So this is their third. This is their third movie in 1990. What is going? I have. This is my favorite episode so far, by the way. Uh, I have a plot summary that you guys should feel to just feel free to just talk right over it. And do if you, you don't talk right over it, I'll just edit you guys talking. Well, over I it. mean, do you want me to just read it then? Uh, do you we'll want to read? Do like, it? Sure. We'll do like yeah. cries and whispers over it, where we'll be. Like, <laughs> yeah, we'll throw the up the formula. I'll read it. Thank you. Uh, it's should we underlay it's, this with it's music. One point five spaced. I hope that's. I'll that give it my. I'll you. give it my best radio All right, voice should too. We, should, Ooh, hell should yeah! We do I will not be interrupting this. Tom Reagan is the right-hand man for Leo O'Bannon, an Irish crime boss. When Johnny Casper, a rival Italian mob boss, tells Leo he intends to kill Bernie Birnbaum, a bookie for one of Leo's horse betting businesses, Leo defies Johnny, saying he'll ensure Bernie's protection against Tom's advisement. Tom finds himself working both sides to balance his loyalty to Leo, the opportunity of Johnny's racket, and his affection for Bernie's sister and Leo's flame, Verna, with whom he's carrying on an affair behind Leo's back. Each ally, backstab, and deception threatens Tom's relation with Verna, his carefully spun web of alliances with the two most powerful crime organizations in the city, and even his life. Smooth as silk. Hell yeah. That was incredible. Thank you. Uh, you're going to have to come back, or maybe I'll just have you record all of our plot summaries. Ooh, yeah, I mean, I can just, just kinda, send them back. I'll just wire those we'll in. We'll do this like the Postal Service used to make music. Yeah, there we go. I mean, I mean they used to make music. Stamps aren't that expensive. <laughs> I think we're laughing from such great heights right now. <laughs> we're such such great trilons. Oh, uh, a lot of great jokes being made here. Is this still your favorite episode? Hit it. it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> hit it. Uh, it is a noir film. Um, the Coens keep making these weird left turns. Uh, uh, two rights don't make a left, but three do. Um, that's the name of a Reliant K. That is a Reliant K album. album. <clears throat> wow, great work. A really sharp. This is the best high five I've ever done in this room. <laughs> yeah, for some fucking rules. For the listeners who couldn't see it, that was a pretty good high five. Really good. <laughs> Let's talk more about how good this episode is. Uh, and they went. They went from uh, minimalist um, dialogue, light, uh, blood simple in 1984 to 1987's Raising Arizona, which is all uh, a madcap farce. It's it's yeah. a really good movie. You should listen to our episode on it if you haven't. Um, and then yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm Hell cross-promoting yeah. with myself. <laughs> uh, and then 1990, along comes Polly. Uh, and it is uh, really... <laughs> along Something comes... Something like fucking... Uh, shit. The guy from Twilight Zone. Rod Serling. Rod, Rod, yeah. Along came Polly. <laughs> uh, then we get <clears throat> Miller's Crossing, uh, sort of a hard-boiled uh, noir 
with that's not really shot like it, which I guess we can talk about later. Mm. Uh, but it's with uh, his a lot of regular cast of his actually filmmakers. We have Baron's, Barry Sonnenfeld at uh, the cinematography, and I'm forgetting the name of his of the uh, Carter Burwell. Carter Burwell, who created the score, and it's a much more full symphonic score than any other previous two films. Uh, so I guess we should just launch off with what everybody thought about this movie. Um, this is a movie uh, of just it several. Uh, <laughs> hit it! Uh, it's a movie that is just several conversations stitched together uh, with little deviation from that. Um, few comedic. Well, every fight sequence in this film is pretty comedic. Um, but it, I mean, it comes off as something that would work really well as a play. I'm a little surprised that it didn't come from that. Um, it feels like an Arthur Miller play. Yeah. It, it yeah. Ooh, that's a really good yeah. uh, reference. And also, uh, it just like it foregrounds dialogue as important in a way that, uh, I like you said, I think neither of the previous Coen Brothers movies really did. Mm-hmm. Um, is this really just their third f- movie? I think so. We better fact check. That's you guys wild. Can keep talking I'm pretty sure it is. Uh, in that uh, Wikipedia article that Jason was just looking through, there's someone I can't remember the name who had cited. Uh, it is the third. Yeah, third film. That's their junior uh, release. Yeah, that doesn't really work. Uh, it worked. I thought Nathan Jr. was the... Oh, my God. Oh my God. What were you going to say about what's on this Wikipedia page? Yes, uh, somebody... Uh, it's in like the f- like opening paragraph of the Miller's Crossing Wikipedia. Um, or the... Maybe it's somewhere else. But they were saying that like Miller's Crossing lives and dies by Gabriel Byrne's performance, which is... Not necessarily a bad take, just because he is in like every scene. Um, like his performance is super important. But what stood out to me, like very prominently, in every scene, was just how much every other performer was pulling their weight, like more than their fair share. Like the like the ensemble in this film is incredible. Um, yeah, we should we should go that. through just like yeah, yeah. who is all. You've got Gabriel Byrne as the title character or as the main character Tom Reagan. Right. Marsha Gay Harden as uh, Verna Birnbaum, the um the woman with whom he's carrying on an affair behind Leo's back. Albert Finney, you know, he goes full ass like John Wick in one scene <laughs> inexplicably with a Oh, I can't gun. wait to talk about yeah, that okay. scene. Uh, John Turturro, um I don't know if this was this his, their this first This would have to be his first performance with them. With the Coen brothers, which is really fantastic yeah. yeah and then a year later they'll cast him as barton fink right yeah galdern Dude. another uh, one of their best movies yes. john polito yes. um appears here again i think their first uh, interaction with john or john polito he later appeared in i'm forgetting if anything between now this movie and 2001 but in 2001 you had the man who wasn't there um i think he, yeah i think he's been in others i can't think of them offhand though j.e freeman has a i never looked up what else he's been in but he had like a very hauntingly familiar face to me uh as eddie dane uh sec- like right hand man to sort of the equivalent of what tom is to sure Leo. yeah he that's is a really to, good point yeah. is to johnny uh steve buscemi of course is this a first for a bunch of like really common was this steve buscemi's first his first, first coen brothers cohen movie. oh yeah. man uh and then some following characters yeah, I guess uh, Steve Buscemi's filmography, um, like Reservoir Dogs, would have been two years after this. I don't know wow. how much he has like filled in the blanks between there, but just it, every uh, like every character introduction scene is super great, especially John Turturro's, um, where he just kind of shows up mm-hmm. in Tom Reagan's apartment. Um, 
but I I was floored by how great every and like that's that's kind of what this fi- what my takeaway from this film will be. It's uh, like great performances, great staging too, um, and uh, I don't know, just like a lot of talking, which is something I like in general. Right. Well, speaking of like those cast performances, Verna, Marsha Hayden, this side red was her debut role. Period. That's insane. Are yeah. you and, kidding me? And she killed it. Yeah, yeah, no, she's she, amazing in yeah. this movie. She uh, looks everybody else. She makes everybody else look like a right. baby child. Sorry for but, saying insane, by the way. Ableism again. Yeah, I'm working on it. But some, some of these like other actors, like Gabriel Byrne, he's still acting. He was the dad in Hereditary, in Hereditary. which was wild. <laughs> Hereditary rules. Shoutouts to Hereditary. Jason Shout and I saw that together, oh and we God. pooped our pants together. I have, I have never been closer. I didn't see that with you guys, but I saw it. And also shoutouts to Hereditary. <laughs> it was it was great. Do you poop your I, pants too? Um. I think my underwear was dry. Okay, good. So it was just a really crusty poo? Uh, There's just a lot of, yeah, a lot of air mostly. A lot of carbon? It's like a cellar door. (laughs) It's just just mostly methane. We'll overlay Jason's social security (laughs) number over this conversation. Uh, so I, I was invited to that hereditary uh, showing and, and elected not to because I'm a scaredy cat. Uh, I do not blame you for it. It is a terrifying film. Gary it was Bird really well done. I it, mean, this is not about hereditary, but like... <laughs> but it, it can is be. now, Let's baby. Just, yeah. <laughs> All right, this is a new Try Love episode inside the other Try Love episode. We're talking about where Hereditary we're now. Uh, I, the writing of this movie is obviously, very, I think, very, very good. I think that... Um, we talked in our last episode about how the Coen's writing really fit a comedic tone in many ways. I think that this is where, like, they live, though, mm-hmm. in this sort of, like, very snappy, noiry uh, sort of uh, time capsule-type language. Uh, what's the rumpus is a term that's uttered by almost yeah. every character yeah. at it's, least It's, once. like, really classic. Um, I think this is – is this New York? Am I showing my whole they ass right say. now? Uh, it is perhaps intentionally a little ambiguous. Mm-hmm. It was like, shot in New Orleans. It's shot in New Orleans. It does have uh, I can't remember what exactly the shout outs are like New Orleans. Maybe there are like details leading to both Philadelphia and New York at different times. It would make sense to be on the East Coast given the mob affiliation. Oh yeah, right. definitely. Had. But but that's what I was gonna say is that like it's the the classic like everybody in this movie is a wise guy mm-hmm. and uh, <clears throat> like Tom Reagan is defined by being the wisest guy to the point where where people shouted out multiple times towards the end of the movie where like they they talk about how he's got such a smart mouth on him and that's why they like him or they don't like him but everybody in this movie is always um, they're playing the angles and they're uh, sassing. For lack of a better term, <laughs> Jesus. Obviously, I'm not no, a wise every, guy. Everybody's not a barb for everybody else. It's, it's right. really like and very sharp writing. That defines their relationships with one another and with themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why, like, I think it's it's really pointed that they chose this setting and these people to make this point. Um, I think that this is a this is a period piece in the best sense, in that it's making a commentary using that period. Um, these people are defined by their sort of nebulous ever shifting allegiances that live and die on um in appearance of uh superiority or of um disaffectedness um much in the way that like a bond movie in the best bond movies like like bond is always affecting this disaffected um like above it all demeanor in the same way that every single character in this movie is whether or not that's true mm-hmm. um and i think that that's really like part and parcel to what the coens are saying about um, 
like identity and interpersonal relationships broadly construed um, through this movie. Um, that's a little bit of take poison that was injected into that. No quick, man's take. Uh, but yeah, uh, this movie is writing is is <clears throat> really sharp and and like you said, I think that like like. If if one reason why they chose this setting was to do all of the things I just mentioned, I think it also just um, lends itself really well to what they excel at, which mm-hmm. is like that really sharp, really sarcastic, uh, acerbic um, writing, uh, witticisms. That hides like a lot of character, like you were saying. Uh, it's not just or, there to be like flaunting. Right, or the void of character, as yeah. the case may be in this movie. Yeah. Uh, Eric, what did you think about this movie? I honestly, I liked it a lot. Um, I think, like I was saying before, like a lot of these sorts of crime mob movies, um, it's just constant twists and turns, and you can't like rely on a set traditional narrative to be like this is how the thing progresses, mm-hmm. and you have to kind of always be on your toes for anything that'll pop up and plot changes and all that. I will say. Um, I mean, we'll obviously start getting into what we like about the movie more specifically, but I I want to point credit to the first scene of the movie for doing such a damn good job in establishing everything that's going to come everything coming important. after it. Yep. Because, I mean, like, the first person we see and hear is Casper, right? And just from the beginning, he's just fucking detestable. Like, his mannerisms, like, he's, like, licking his lips at one point and just, like, how he's talking about ethics and being above board, <laughs> even though Later in the movie, he, like, smacks his kid, you know, yeah. so... Everybody in this movie is a fucking murderer. Well, yeah. Everybody is a womanizer. Complete Every... dirtbag. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing, right? It, it immediately sets a precedent that, like, all these guys suck, and you don't really want to root for any of them that much, and... Well, in, in, in all of their their um, supposed codes and their um, their gestures towards a grander morality or towards uh, a friendship or o muerta or what have you is all bullshit, It's right? all and self-serving, like, That's all yeah. set up from the start. I mean, right. literally, Bernie's talking about how, listen, like, this guy... Or not Bernie, I'm sorry. Casper's talking about how, like, listen, this guy Bernie has no ethics, and that's why we need to kill him. Mm-hmm. Like that's why he has to be murdered. It's right. because he doesn't have any ethics, you guys. Well then and then even at the end of that, like the whole conversation, like the whole idea of was that really a good idea also sets a really good precedent for the movie because after that everything just spirals in a buck wild direction, like Mm-hmm. And that's maybe where we should head next is, well, uh, no, I didn't give any screen time to Cody about what he liked about this movie. Oh, yeah. I, you let off with me. Did I leave out with you? Yeah. Wow. It's been so long. It has been like a year. I uh, talk so much. I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, this movie is, again, sort of the Coens dip really heavily into the uh, noir trope of being just incomprehensibly plotted in many ways. Not like like they do explain what, uh, most things that are going on. Everything does make sense in the end, but it is there's very, a, very dense. There's a fluidity to the plot, too, where you get the sense that, like, it, <clears throat> like a Dashiell Hammett um, mystery, you get the, the feeling that the moment-to-moment plotting is not as important as the overall yeah. sort of grand arc. And I think that's really pointed in this case, because this is like an anti-noir, anti-mystery um, in the sense that the payoff of the noir is always that it was always meticulously planned from the beginning. That uh, in this case, in the conventional noir, that Tom Reagan always had his plan. That he was always on the side of Leo. That he that his double crossing um, Yojimbo style was always planned and always in service of a larger goal. That does not happen in this movie. Yeah. In fact, it like pointedly doesn't happen. Nobody in this movie 
has a, a grand scheme, except for the grand schemes that blow up in their faces, and everybody's flying by the seat of their pants, and all of their gestures towards um, larger personhood are bullshit. There's like a yawning void at the heart of each of these characters that they cover up with affectations like hats and fancy suits and alcoholism and witticisms um, to disguise the fact that they are all uh, animals. <laughs> uh, to go along with your claim of this movie being like very pointedly anti-noir, um, it, stylistically, um, maybe not entirely, but in some regards, I mean, the most marketable or marketed, rather, image from this film is uh, at least one of the scenes of, like, everybody being in the woods, um, the it, the titular Miller's Crossing. Um, it shows up first in the, the title card for the movie, which is after that, I believe immediately after that great sequence that we were just talking about. Um, it says Miller, Miller's Crossing goes through the names, and it's um, a bowl hat, um, bowl what are the bowler hat? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. Just sitting in, in the in the wooded area that we later find out. Um, I, I just like the 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 image of of woods comes from a dream that Tom has. Yes. Yep. Um, the dream is really important. Yeah. Yes. The, the dream, and then just uh, uh, Miller's Crossing itself being the place where people go to die um, and where people go to get buried. Um, if we're assuming that the wooded areas we see it's later where you are kind take of the same people place. to bump them off. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and just like that, that arena in itself being like uh, very green, very impeccably lit with like no real trace of like the traditional shadows that you would get from like classic noir. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's when I mentioned at the top, <coughs> excuse me, about how this movie isn't particularly shot or styled like typical noir. Uh, there are a lot of shots like that that happen during daytime with very bright light. There it are looks still- like Barry Lyndon, which was like yeah. uh, is shot in um, natural light. Yeah, like this yeah. movie could have been shot in natural light. It looks like it. Yeah, I'd- a lot of times. Yeah, uh, some of the interior shots at night make that would make that a little hard. But like to that point, it feels very natural, which is like sort of uh, not exactly against how noir works or like staples of noir. But usually there, that's a there's like a highly stylized version of reality that appears in noir to emphasize you know dark and light nature and all that this is almost none of that really happens in this movie it's all very like i mean it, it's shot like a 90s movie for lack of a better term it's shot like you know like a stage play we were just talking about um but it uh it was, and that's a little bit deceptive right because um again Barry Sonnenfeld appeared like his crazy camera work in uh both blood simple and raising arizona would belie that because this is very like normally there are very few uh like wild or like um, it's it's understatement as statement right yeah it, yeah. it, it like it, it perfectly fits the tone of the movie and like it serve it is in service of a larger goal but if you're segmenting it out it is um totally like i won't say unremarkable because it fits so well but it's not like super stylized and that again is like to that point of it being uh not anti-noir necessarily but like not typically yeah for sure and i think the idea of like going through like some great extra effort to make things look really n- normal, uh, especially with the wooded areas. Barry Sonnenfeld actually communicated the idea of like we can only shoot these scenes in like really like cloudy, overcast weather, and like fortunately they will they were able to get that like every day that they were shooting in the woods, save for like a couple hours. Um, can you imagine any of those scenes where he's looking up through the foliage and like some bright <laughs> ray or something appears that ruin the entire shot, that ruin the entire scene? Yeah, I didn't know that that was like. A mandate, but it makes a lot of sense in retrospect. Um, 
I mean, I, I want to say that I honestly was really impressed with the cinematography mm-hmm. in the film. Like, I'm, I'm not, I would never say I'm like wise enough in terms of movie like knowledge. Oh, to, me either. To, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. To like observe and recognize all these cool things that happen, but with Miller's Crossing in particular, I feel like there was a lot of really good framing and like just uses of the camera. Um, one of my favorites that I think is really most people might not pick up on it as much but like that first time leo comes to tommy's room and he's he goes in there with verna and like it's the scene starts off and it's basically like pitch black and he brings him in and like as they start to like warm up to each other the lights in the room also warm up and begin Hmm. to illuminate them more and more wow and i thought that was a super cool little touch um, but there's all kinds of other stuff too that they did that was really interesting. Like also really early on when Tommy wakes up and he's with the does that bartender have a name for Leo's club? It's a good question. Is it Tad? It yeah, it's probably Tad. I think so. Um, is Tad the barkeep? I think it is. And when Tad wakes him up, it it's really interesting because that most of that scene is like just focused on Tad just kind of sitting on that couch with Tom off screen and they're just having this conversation and like especially for your main character, you don't generally see that kind of thing. I I love watching people react to to Tom throughout the like the the repeated line, I think IMDb Trivia had it at eight times, the Jesus, Tom. Just like peop- <laughs> people emoting to shit that Tom says and does uh, is just like a great flavor whenever it crops up. Yeah, and you, you brought up that, that Tom wakes up next to Tad um, after he'd been like blackout drunk, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really important that the, that the movie establishes early on that Tom and Leo are not doing great. Leo is the sort of kingpin uh, mobster of this uh, syndicate that that it controls the city. They say it multiple times. Uh, A running gag in this movie is that the mayor and the police commissioner are sitting in the respective offices of whoever controls city's crime at the time, Mm -hmm. and they're just yes-men, like... uh, um, but, but Tom and Leo aren't doing well, and it's implied that the reason why that is is because they have genuine feelings for each other and for other people. Uh, Leo is legitimately in love with Verna, who is using him to uh, protect her brother Bernie from Casper. Uh, Leo knows that and doesn't seem to care. Uh, Tom has legitimate feelings for Leo uh, as, like, like sworn brothers, basically, um, who had been fighting their way to the top forever. This is sort of after they've made it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he also is having an affair with Verna, um, which is a contradiction of his supposed true feelings. Um, and so this is a movie that sets up the idea that the, these characters are sort of being left behind by the mechanism of their their crime. Uh, there's a recurring motif in this movie that getting to the top is what or once you're at the top, you break. Um, both Leo and Casper are broken by their um, emotions uh, because they have this sort of like hindsight where they want to recognize themselves as other than what they were, which were like shameless social ladder climbing murderers. Um, once they arrive there, Tom's trying to, or um, Leo's trying to save himself through his relationship with Verna. Uh, Casper ends up trying to save himself, uh, I think, kind of with Tom. Um, yeah, I think that's her. But but both of them are sort of broken by uh, the the amorality of their actions or immorality of their actions once they reach the top. Um, but that's sort of how it's framed at first, is that Tom is sort of failing because he can't keep up with the sort of um, 
immorality or amorality morally gray world that that they're a part of right like he can't gamble and his impotence at gambling is sort of a metaphor for his impotence at continuing to navigate the the circles in which he's a part Mm -hmm. um even though he is at the top of those circles Um, right even even though he is like making his he's he's got his head above water but it's uh, a very very uh decisive maneuver just every 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 so often it's we're reminded that uh he is behind he needs to pay up and eventually he gets the shit kicked out of him right. near the end it's 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 even like i like the metaphor uh his head is above water but it's more like he has drowned and has managed to convince everyone that he hasn't yet it's <laughs> yeah. it's it's like he's he's it's not physically a, impossible but yeah i like that a lot yeah, more too he's uh he's not he, he's not uh like working except that he has he affects the attitude and swagger of someone who is in control again like james bond would um and that's what i love so much about this movie um and uh i guess to i think this is one of my favorite coen brothers movies maybe yeah Uh, i'd have to think about it more i saw it for the first time last night um but uh it's it's a movie that is is not only interested in creating um the tropes of a uh, genre, but also in fundamentally working through those tropes um, because of how they're chosen. Mm-hmm. And like in this, in this, uh, this is a movie that's so interested in like, like why these people are acting this way, and like why mobsters had to affect this sort of smarmy uh, swagger of somebody who's got it all figured out. Why? Um, why they're always giving him the high hat, as Johnny yeah. says several times throughout the movie. Right, and and. High hat is an interesting thing too because hats are themselves. Hats are such a big fucking part yeah. of this movie. And they're yeah. symbolic of of the identity that you put on. Right? And how they're like thirty percent of the time that they're shown, it's in like a following shot where you see the ground and then you see the hat land and then somebody steps on it or somebody crushes it or it's falling off of somebody's punched head. Or Tom Reagan such... spends his entire uh, the entire movie chasing after his hat, even it, though in ooh. the dream he says there's nothing more ridiculous than a man chasing after his hat. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. That I'm is sorry that I got out. So we're already good. diving into the uh, hat. Yeah. Huh? yeah. Um, but, but this, it's a, it's a movie that's about the identities that we put on and why we do that. Um, and this is, it's a, it's a world, this world is, is fundamentally amoral and these people are affecting the identities that they affect in order to impose meaning onto it. Um, and, uh, Tom's arc in this story is coming to realize that he doesn't have a self and he doesn't have a that there is no moral structure uh, and that he has failed to impose it. Um, he has he has a moment of grace again, kind of Barry Lyndon like when he spares Bernie, and that blows up in his face, mm-hmm. um, just like trying to help Leo blew up in his face. And so like any sort of gestures towards morality in this movie fail, um, and are revealed to be not gestures towards morality at all but but in service of a of a greater mm-hmm. um selfish purpose again except for the moment of grace with bernie but that's the worst one probably for tom anyway well i i think what i think what's really interesting about that is like that for again going back to the first scene of the movie and kind of for throughout a good chunk of the movie tom is like the amount of times he talks about reason and like reason being the thing that I has to go forward. I have a reason for everything I do. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's like he so stringently talks about that and tries to adhere to that, almost as if he's trying to like avoid his own feelings right. in there. It's Tom is the guy with the plan. He has a plan. He's going to figure this out. We're going to get through this, right? 
Which is which is funny because I mean you know then when he gets in fights with Verna like multiple times she'll tell him he has no heart and that comes into play later of course like when he lets Bernie live mm-hmm. at that one point and then later on when he doesn't yeah look into your heart yeah what heart <laughs> well, and that's a that's a parallel because at, at the first time that he lets Bernie go in Miller's Crossing Bernie says look into your heart this mm-hmm. isn't you we're not like those animals he says and then uh, Tom lets and him go and he believes him yeah yep and then later on after Bernie tries to screw him by coming back and using the very fact that um, Tom let Bernie live as blackmail, saying like, "Hey, the fact that you let me go means that you will disobeyed orders, and they're going to kill you." Uh, Which is actually really smart mobstering. Super like, smart. Well, and it's like you said, you didn't you didn't see the angle I gave you gave me. And uh, Tom's supposed to be the guy that sees all the angles. He's supposed to be the guy that sees them all better than anybody else. Um, yeah, and <clears throat> I talked last episode we recorded raising Arizona, raising Arizona about ten minutes ago about how the people that we're following in these movies somehow seem to at least often stumble across the finish line and like clean up the things that they need to i think that's pretty prevalent here um just like that final sequence of him um uh casper and and uh bernie have that interaction and tom is able to kind of clean up his own mess and start from scratch again right yeah, uh, and like I said, like he cleans up his mess, but it was never the plan, right? He right. was flying by his seat of the pants the whole time, and that's the way in which this subverts the idea of the meticulously planned mobster movie. Right. Um, and also, like this is, it's about Tom coming to realize that that's always who he was. That just like everybody else, everyone in this movie is like an animal operator, right? Like they're trying to survive, and survival is the name of the game, and that's the only reason behind what what they're doing. Right. Um, well, and the other reason I liked it too is because that at that moment in that first scene where Tom is like oh this is reason like reason is what we do this is how we survive and like Leo is like the opposite of that he's much more gut oriented and seeing that juxtaposition between this pair is like a really interesting start to things because it's like oh this is where Tom like if he was in charge could be but then this is where the emotion kicks in and then as the movie goes on emotion is just kind of the it establishes how we're supposed to see Tom yeah exactly uh, well, I mean, like, we could talk about comedy and violence in this movie and how they're intertwined. Mm-hmm. Uh, I notice that the absurdity of this movie, again, we just talked about Raising Arizona, which is all absurdity, all comedy. Uh, and on the other end of the, as the pendulum swings back, this is like way of the more of the cynical type presentation and serious t- storytelling uh, with like dashes and spikes of humor occasionally. Mm-hmm. But it, it really peaks the both absurdity and the apparent comedy of it all really peaks during the times of incre- or of, uh, of incredible violence there and are in such on-brand ways too where like yeah. this is the uh noir gangster movie and what's the funny thing that happens with violence in gangster movies oh somebody gets shot with a tommy gun and they do the thing where their body here it out. is uh and like that they do that to like the most absurd nth degree right to like where, where like, there are seven cuts seven yes. shots of every tommy gun had holds twenty thousand bullets i was gonna say <laughs> that man particularly got shot about 600 <laughs> times yeah. Yeah. infinite uh, ammo what sequence was this in again we may as well just talk that about was, it because um, it's amazing yeah. so it's about a third of the way into the movie um we see a couple guys with Tommy guns uh, sneaking into Leo's estate. A couple of Johnnies, guys. Yeah, a couple of Johnnies. And uh, basically, they they kill the guy, whoever was downstairs, and they're moving up 
to Leo's room, but Leo picks up on what they're doing, and... And Danny Boy is playing on vinyl? And Danny Boy <laughs> is playing on vinyl. You can't attack an Irish mobster while his fucking theme song's playing. <laughs> yeah. He's gonna kick your ass. That is Leo's jam, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, so the attempt does not work. Uh, he picks up Wise, um, and eventually kills both of them. Um, but the first one goes down fairly, fairly quick with a couple of pistol shots, but then when... Leo breaks out. He shows that he's still, as it was said in the, uh, as it was said in the movie, an artist with the Thompson. And from the like, from on the main ground outside to like that second, third floor window, whatever it is, is just lighting up this dude. And he, oh my god! In the interim, there he like he grabs the Tommy gun from the first dead guy, jumps out the window. Mm-hmm. Albert Finney, I don't know how old he was in this movie. He looks in his sixties probably. Jumps out the window. I, I, I then later saw him in Big Fish in like the mid two thousands, where he looks ancient. Big Fish. Uh, I think he's in Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Oh, yeah? two thousand seven. Okay, so oh, he's old as fart. Let's just say, like he is old as yo. FCC so. crackdown on this yeah. guy. Fart CC. Uh, but he let him. He he slides off of the roof, grabs the gutter, lands. He should have like shattered an ankle or something. But then he's like doing that full James Cagney like. Suppressing nice. the the recoil of the gun as he's shooting at this right. uh, at this Model T that's running by on the street, just the most like action movie scene that they could have possibly put. And in hilarious movie. and ridiculous, oh, it's, yeah. it's right? Funny as hell. And almost all of the well, uh, violence comes in two speeds in this movie, right? It's either hilarious, madcap, or ridiculous, like every policeman in the county shooting at a uh, door. I love um, those Or all scenes. of the fistfights in this movie, which are hilarious Indiana Jones-style fistfights with, mm-hmm. like, super exaggerated haymakers and silly faces when you get hit and uh, crawling all over the ground. Um, or it's horrible <laughs> because it's just watching a dude get shot point-blank in the face and his face explodes, basically, or his skull drains out of the back of his head content warning i guess uh some of the some of the shooting in this movie is is terrible and horrifying and so it's really funny that it comes in that those two flavors uh and and the way that those two forms of violence are um navigated in this movie is really interesting um albert finney uh was born in 1936 so he was roughly 54 uh, 50, 53 at the time of this movie being filmed, probably, maybe. He looks older uh, because of the way they've done his makeup. Right, his yeah. Too. Yeah, still, fit. I mean, like, he, he's cl- he, he clearly wasn't the person who actually jumped off of this roof. No. But, like, the character we were meant to believe right. Right, is quite a bit older and very, very lithe. Well, it was. it's interesting to me, too, because, like, Tommy guns, especially from that period, are super heavy. Like, I've been, I forget where I was, but they had one in, like, a vault, and they let people hold it, and, like, even without any ammunition magazine, that thing was, like, 20 pounds. And then you went to the nearest Sun Country Bank and just looted the whole place. They didn't let me walk out with it. Um, Oh. (laughs) How'd they stop you? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, yeah, like, just seeing this, like, middle-aged man with this, like, what's supposed to be super heavy gun, just, like conducting his own little Danny Boy symphony. <laughs> um, one other note about Albert Finney. I completely forgot he passed away earlier this year. Oh, oh man. Um, no. February 7th, 2019. Great actor. Yeah, great R. actor. Uh, he would have been... He was 72, so shout out to Albert Finney. Yeah, Albert Finney's great in this Shout movie. out to Albert Finney. Uh, the other instances of violence that this movie really sinks its teeth into um, are... There are lesser ones that are... Weirdly, they're, like, less impactful, more, like, transitory scenes, but they're still very, like, big and 
extra heavy is when um, the police raid different locations uh, when they're allied with with one um, gang or the other. I think the first time that it happens is Leo's people raiding one of Johnny's places. Uh, and it's like dozens of police officers just getting in uh, like a big bar brawl in one of Johnny's places. Uh, and then Tom steps out amid the chaos and talks to the police chief about, um, you know, just shooting the shit basically and getting information on how, like, uh, what's going on with police relations and uh, and the different gang uh, loyalties. Yeah, that was – I actually have a note on here that says, holy shit, the amount of cops when things were popping <laughs> off. Yeah. And then he all like the police chief always says like it's a mess in there like can you believe it yeah uh, amazing that the the two big uh, scene what please say the like mirrored shots yes yeah like the like those scenes are like super identical to one another um, and they are like mirror images Tom walking out and talking to the police chief like the conversations nice. the entire yeah. way that they, that plays out is so perfect like the because first... they are just literal mirrors of yeah. each other and it's form following function right like the it's suggestion tough. is supposed to be that this is happening and will happen again and again right. and mm-hmm. again nothing could be more routine like shout out to Inside Lewin Davis <laughs> yeah ah. uh, that's man that last scene is one of my favorite in movies uh, anyway um like Tom goes to talk to Casper right after that, and he says, "What's that mess outside?" And Tom or Casper like literally waves it off. He's just like, "Ah, we're breaking up some club." Meanwhile, like two doors down, uh, police are unloading um, like tons of ammunition into this fucking bar, led uh, by uh, Sam Raimi, right? Mm-hmm. Sam yeah. Raimi, little bit part. That's yep. the funniest fucking thing That's to see right. him doing. Um, I'm glad you brought up the the. Um, we talked about it a little bit with the hat, but with the um, the swinging nightclubs and the nice clothes and the big offices, it's really important to this movie. Uh, and I, maybe I'm sounding like a broken record, but like these are people with pretensions, right? Uh, these are people who want to see themselves as sophisticates, as even old money. Like there's there's like a really Hitchcockian leisure class. Um, like mentality about these people where like everybody's gambling and everybody has property ownership. Everybody's got rackets. Everybody's got money coming in. Um, and the money is so fluid. We're like, yeah, I owe this guy $5,000, but like he knows I'm good for it. And like this, this other bookie I've got, he owes me $2,000 anyway. And like, yeah, maybe that bookie's going to come break my legs, but who, you know, who cares? Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm done. I'm sorry. Oh, no, sorry, I was playing around with my mic, and then Jason decided to antagonize me. Your uh, points were good. That Those, uh, like, back on violence, I just want to wrap up that point. The last instance of, like, overt violence that's used, at, like, very comedically, but very disturbingly comedically, I mentioned this, I think, before we started recording, is when uh, eventually um, Tom manages to turn Johnny on his right-hand man, uh, Eddie the Dane, um, as as Eddie is about to kill Tom, like he literally has him in a chokehold, he's nearly dead, and then Johnny snaps to it and kills him with a, uh, it's a, like a fire, it's a like a um, scoop, it's a shovel, it's yeah. a, but it's an ash shovel, an ash shovel, yeah. yeah. Uh, and he just brutally beats this man. I no, I think that's fair because the Dane was kind of an ash hole. Ooh. His Thank you for listening to Tri Love. Brain was an ash hole by the time. Yeah, they're gonna done. oof that joke with the Man, garbage. What, shoveling some of the, in here. Some of the funniest uh, cinematography in that uh, 
scene too. Where yeah. When he says like, "This is something I always teach my boys: always shoot him in the brain." The the uh, camera does this like ludicrous like across the room zoom at his yeah, face. Small and it's just like, Dutch tilt with yeah. blood all over his face. Yeah. Uh, but there is in the background of this scene. I'm forgetting the significance of this character to the plot, except maybe that he just hides out one of the like key players in this whole mystery. He, he was the boxer that Tom went to go see that was like allegedly going to throw the fight. Yeah. Oh, yeah. so which he's is, the center is, of the betting. Again, it's not horse betting. Part and parcel to their uh, their whole system. Like right. the rackets, how the rackets work is they fix horse races and they fix boxing and that's how these people make their money. And and, and these people like this man we're talking about are kind of like the working class of this hierarchy. They're the uh, ones the, actually performing. The fighters though. are, yeah. yeah. But that also sets off the inciting incident, right? Where like Casper wants to kill Bernie because after Casper fixes a fight Bernie puts out information that the fight is fixed and changes the odds in his favor and then bets against the fix, mm-hmm. um, which is, uh, like, the no-no it's, in this society. It's complete insubordination. Which, which is what Casper's point is in the first scene, is that, mm-hmm. like, this is, like, this is the ethical dilemma. Is like, we have this code, and this code says, like, this is the thing you can't do. And Bernie's doing this, and it's upsetting the whole system, and that's why he has to die. Right. Um, and uh, Leo won't kill him because he's in love with Verna, that sets off the war between think, these two. Sorry, I think it was also because uh, Bernie pays for protection. Right, they, that that ostensibly, but like that's, that's the you know, excuse he gave. Right. Okay. Yeah. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, very, very Helen of Troy. By the time we end up like at the bottom of this, two warring factions and a woman in the middle of it, sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, but this this character has already been beaten, and he's in the background of the scene where um, uh, this Johnny, is the boxer. I'm sorry to yeah yeah uh, the boxer is uh, sitting in the background. He's already been like he's had he's been worked over by Johnny and the Dane, and Johnny is killing uh, Eddie the Dane, and this character is just like screaming, just screeching in the background. I'm assuming out of some form of brain trauma or something because it's not really explained why he's yelling so much yeah it was weird because like he was talking to tom in the apartment just fine and it was all of a sudden like he couldn't talk so i was wondering if like the dane like cut out his tongue or something he, he might have done something terrible i'm assuming it's just like blunt force trauma left him dazed and that he just c- keeps screaming in the background which is like horrifying horrifying to see but like in the context of how this movie like ramps up to that scene and how frenetic the editing and shooting gets from there uh it's it's like it's too absurd to not call it comedy by that time oh yeah in the juxtaposition right like these are these are people who are defined or who define themselves by their pretension toward um clever speaking Uh and witticisms and the sort of uh a nuanced sophisticated um social dynamic that they that they all work hard at establishing with one another these Mm -hmm. are like these are people who are like very interested in maintaining interpersonal relationships and so like to see at the end of this talky movie uh a boxer just screaming his lungs out is a notable juxtaposition right but i mean i think the movie has multiple of those and it sets the universe up really well because one of the first ones that stuck out to me was when i think his name was ralph that one politician was dead in the alley and the kid sees it oh rug rug yeah and instead of like freaking out or something, oh, he grabs his wig and just kind of walks off with it. Oh, man, that wig. was like a virtuoso of a scene. That was like the scene when I was like, "Wow, maybe this movie's a masterpiece." Like I was like so on board from that. Like when they show the dead guy. Yeah, I was gonna say, do you know the shots? The like, kid. Yeah, and then the dog. Reverse then, order. Oh, is it reverse yeah, order? The, well, how is the, it? The, yeah, the first shot is the dog yeah. like looking kind of uh, angled head. 
at we don't know what, and then shot of a kid straight on looking at something, and then it's the cut to the corpse, and then I think the next shot is all three all together. All three of them in a triangle. Oh, beautiful. Triangle just like sitting very still, and eventually, yeah, the wig comes off. Yeah. And not in like a clean sweep or anything either. The kid like reaches for it, pulls it, notices that it's like not real hair, pulls his hand back, then reaches again, grabs it and sprints. It's yeah. just such good and setup. It seems like we're sort of going back and forth, uh, Jason and I, between like sophistication and violence. But those are the, the twin like ironic shadows of one another in this movie, right? Is that like these are these are people who who perform brutal actions who nonetheless have pretensions towards sophistication. None more so than Tom, who like Eric pointed out, does everything for a reason, thinks we're men of reason, believes that they have risen to the place that they are because of reason, and now feels betrayed by Leo because he is abandoning reason in favor of Verna. Uh, not seeing that he does the same thing by sleeping with Verna on the side, even though that is clearly not in his best interest. Um, and the the violence is the sort of underbelly of this world, which is fascinating because it's not only brutal, it's also absurd and hilarious. And so that's the sort of final bitter irony of this movie, right? Is is it's not just that these are that these are sophisticated men who are actually brutal. It's that these are sophisticated men who are actually ridiculous. And that's that's the harder pill to swallow, right? Like these these people have no problem being brutal as long as they come out on top, as long as they actually uh, had a plan all along, and that they were following their plan. They still get to be the smart guys that they want to be. What this movie is saying is that they were never smart guys; they were idiot animals who were killing and fighting each other. It's all very along. much like a and picture of toxic masculinity. Yeah, that's the worst thing for them. It wouldn't be the brutality because that still leaves them the hope of sophistication uh, at the end. It, the the worst thing is how ridiculous this all is. How Tom was an idiot chasing after his hat all along. It wasn't that he was a brutal sophisticate. It was just that he was an animal chasing after his hat. Um, and that's the sort of takedown that this movie's going for. In the sort of Cohen um, framework that we talked about in the last two movies, where the sort of headline and then what really happened, this movie's defining motivations as like, look at all of these people who are... Uh, striving so hard to impose a sort of um, framework of sophisticated power dynamic onto what is essentially just animal territorial fighting. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Sorry. uh, What's what's your favorite example of that? Because, like, I have one in mind where there's a scene, an establishing shot, where um, Tom is reading the newspaper, and on the outside it says, uh, local bookmaker, whoever, whatever Rug was, uh, one of uh, Leo's men who was, or maybe Johnny's men. No, no, it was Rug, because they're explaining who that guy was that was dead in the alley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, And it's, uh, you know, he has the newspaper, and it's sort of a front shot of Tom, and he's got the newspaper in front of his face, and you're reading the headline on the front page. And then he sets the newspaper down, and it turns out he was looking at, like, track, uh, like, horse betting numbers and stats. It's just very, like plays very much to what I think you were saying about the sort of like what's really happening versus what is presented as happening, sort of the uh, dual nature of of that, like the relationships between those stories. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, the the, the big one is um, Tom realizing all of this, realizing that that he really doesn't have a heart, that like his, his gestures towards reason and um, towards having a plan were never that which is when he kills Bernie in the end. He says, what heart, when Bernie asks him. And so then he cold. finally, yeah, he finally um, quits after that. He That gives him 
the motivation he needs to leave the life behind, where Leo, back out on top after Casper's killed by Bernie, says, uh, Tom, Jesus, I wish you would come back and work for me, and he says goodbye, um, and he walks off uh, because Verna took the car, so they're both walking home. Um, but the other one, the, the really good one that I like so much is when um, Casper tries to get Tom to uh, fold on Leo. Uh, Tom refuses, so they're going to beat him up. And uh, first, this big heavy comes in, and um, they they put on this show where that the heavy takes off his hat, takes off his coat, uh, and then rolls up his sleeves and sort of takes off his cufflinks, and it's like this great undressing, and then puts up his dukes, and Tom's like, wait. And then he does the same thing, uh, and then he says, all right. And then the, the heavy approaches, and Tom just... Take, picks up the chair and hits him across the face with it, and this heavy gets this terrible nosebleed and goes, "Jesus, Tom!" <laughs> and then he just leaves, dejectedly walks yeah. out the door. Uh, <laughs> I was I was waiting to call back to that. I was going to say shout out to when Cody brought up Jesus, Tom. Yeah. This scene was really good for <laughs> it's that. So funny. It's, it's completely so, not scored. Like it's just yeah. all diagetic sound. Right. It's great. And like I love Tom there too, where it's like everybody in this world knows each other. So like that was like a dude that he knew <laughs> that he like had probably hung out with. Yeah, like these dudes go bowling yeah. like Thursdays. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also, like, he leaves the room, and then this other dude comes in who does not dress down. He's like, I'm just going to beat yeah, you. It's like, really funny because, like, that guy's, like, also a short old dude who then catches the chair and beats the shit out of Tom. <laughs> which, yeah. I think that was Tic Tac. I, I uh, believe the short one was Tic Tac. The and big the, one is Frankie. Yeah. yeah. Mike, Mike Starr and Al. Uh, Mike Starr is Frankie. Al Mancini is Mancini. Mancini. But as a Mancini. <clears throat> Shout outs to Drew, my friend. I think, uh,. Going back to what Harry was talking about earlier, as far as like the violence and like um, the the note you kind of said about people kind of moving through the world that way, like I thought one scene really stuck out to me that was really interesting, where when Tom revealed to Leo that he was also sleeping with Verna, and what really stuck out to me specifically in that scene is he didn't strike back against Leo once, so it was almost like the emotion kind of kicked in for him in that moment and he felt for Leo in that moment and was like, I can't just fight this guy. This isn't right. I just kind of have to take this. Like, mm. I was thinking that too, just like the strength a man has to have where like in front of all these people who probably like fear, maybe some of them respect the shit out of him too, but just to not like raise your fists up, even in self-defense, even once. Right. Like that was super telling. Cause Leo is like sending him down the hall with, the haymakers and kicking him down the stairs out of his nightclub. Yeah, it's that's a good point. That is also, I mean, he he's also being confronted by Leo's whole organization, though. So yeah, like that true. wasn't really a fight so much as it was like a demonstration, yeah. right? Um, but I mean, that still that point still stands. He doesn't raise up his fists against uh, Leo because he Leo's like one the one person he cares about in this movie, except for uh, Verna in the end. I, can I use that as a pivot point to talk about yes. Verna? Because I don't... I, I do want to talk about Verna. I yeah. don't know how much I actually have to say about Verna. I really want to talk about her as a character, though. She feels at times like she's just being tossed between men and being used as an excuse to get angry at times, at, at the at the least utilized times. But I feel like, as a character, she was built a lot better and smarter than that. I do, like, as great as uh, Marsha Gay Harden is here and as great of a character as Verna Birnbaum is, I still feel like she's not done the justice that she probably deserves. Um, Harry, you had, you had said after we had watched it that, mm -hmm. like, you had wished that we had seen more of, like, her 
kind of maneuvering behind the scenes, like to see the kind of um, hustling that she does, yeah, uh, and like realizing full well that may not be what this movie is about. I would have liked to see that too. Just, she like, kind of disappears her. in yeah. the second act, correct? Uh, which is frustrating, especially we, because she set up like Jason. You made the uh, really good um, parallel. Like she's the Helen of Troy here. Like she and her political maneuvering are the reason for this war. Uh, and then after the war sort of starts to happen, um, sh- yeah, she she's used as a plot device quite a few times. Um, she's the reason for the war between um, Casper and um, Leo. She's the reason for the rift between Leo and Tom. She's the reason why Bernie's alive for as long as he is. Mm-hmm. She's the reason why um, Tom doesn't kill Bernie, which is what sets uh, Tom down his final sort of scary fall. Um, but and she definitely has agency of her own. Yeah. Uh, she has a definite goal, which is to keep Bernie alive and then to um, be with Tom, I, I guess. And, um, yeah. And she really is quite canny with all the like tools at her disposal. But like we only ever see her in context. Maybe it's because it's a POV story like uh, like Racing Arizona was with High. But we only ever see her in relation to like how she bounces off of one of the male characters and like her, how her actions impact and like fluctuate that situation between male characters right. and power. And she even, she even goes through the same loss in parallel to Tom where like in this movie, um, the, the posturing, um, and the way that the society is constructed to require that posturing, it'll end up taking away from you, um, the real things that you want, right? Like the real interpersonal relationships that these people strive toward or or want can't exist in this world uh tom can't be friends with leo tom and verna can't end up together um because uh bernie verna can't protect bernie in the end even from the man that loves her apparently um because to survive in this world those things have to dissolve um and they do i mean verna has her falling out with tom she threatens to kill him she can't, but uh, after this is right before he kills Bernie, and after he kills Bernie, she um, takes up with Leo again, asks him to marry her. That's the end of her arc. So it's all there, right? I mean, like she ends up in the same place, the same unhappy place as everybody else. Where in order to continue to navigate this world, she has to give up what she wants and what she loves and the person she thinks she is. Because that's what happens to all of these people, right? Tom has to give up who he thinks he is. So does Verna. So does Leo. Um, everybody else dies. <laughs> uh, but I wanted to see more of it. I guess I wanted more yeah. of her interiority. It can't like with as dense as some of the, as all these plot lines are, and as quick and like full as the writing is. It can't be understated how important it would have been to see more of her on screen, more of her, like you said, more of her acting, more of her what she's doing behind the scenes to. Uh, actually, like, affect some of the things that, that, because she is so central to the entire plot, to see her, like, how she's actually affecting her parts status of this as a plot um, driver is more important than her character arc, and I wish that that wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eric, any thoughts about Verna? I mean, kind of echoing the same vein that you're talking about, it would have been, you know, great to see more of her because mm-hmm. she's this sort of especially in the beginning she's the piece of what ignites the war basically mm-hmm. because they don't give up bernie and you know she's at the center of why bernie is not given up and it the few interactions we get with her don't like give her enough chances to shine in different dimensions i feel like yeah 
Marsha Gay Harden really, really brought it for this role. Well, uh, and, and for her debut role, yeah, like I can't crazy. say that again. Like, yeah, that's wild. That is crazy, man. And she like she she carries or doesn't carry, but but she acts her own. She holds her own with Gabriel Byrne, like a champ, uh, and Gabriel Byrne, who's like a very acclaimed established Seasoned, actor yeah. and delivering Coen Brothers dialogue like wow uh, amazing and uh, interesting that that like especially the way that that she she's the the fulcrum for exposing how this society falls apart right where like Tom thinks she's the fly in the ointment she's like the reason why actors aren't operating according to the rules like Leo won't act in accordance with the rules and just acts Bernie <laughs> because he's in love with Verna yeah. when it turns out that there were no rules like Tom this was bullshit all along you were sleeping with Verna too like nobody is acting in accordance with any rules except survival animal uh, yeah. but I, it would have been really nice to have seen how that comes apart because and, and how those rules can't exist uh with verna in this world um yeah i love the first images that we get of verna um tom goes to he goes to her place yeah um and she's she's won his hat in one of the oh right because he got plastered uh gambling the night before and the he hat. bet his yeah, hat keep an eye on the keep hat an eye, yeah Ch- don't go chasing that hat um <laughs> don't go chasing Hatter falls. I regret that. Um, hey, we can cut that. I Hit opened it. a trial up. Can we? <laughs> um, she the first time she opens the door, it, like it's a great um, uh, Cohen trope alert, but of just like repeating things um, for different reasons, largely comedic, of her opening the door and like doing this kind of pose on the door and then slamming the door in his face. Tom knocks again and she opens it. Does the exact same pose. Um, <laughs> I don't know, it was just really great. I liked uh, it a lot. He also represents two roles there, where, like, the first time he, he knocks on the door, he's all business, and she gives him the hi-hat. And then he she closes the door, he knocks on it, and then he says, like, can I have a drink? And I need, she goes, yeah, I need a drink. Why didn't you just say so? And, like, that's, like, the second role <laughs> that he... And then she's giving him his hat. Yes. Not the hi-hat. That was it. Is this a metaphorical hat? What are we talking about? No, it gives him a physical hat. She gives yeah, him yeah, a, yeah, a, a group like two symbols say that facing like that. each other that you can tap for tempo and rhythm, giving him the hi hat. But um, hit it. <laughs> uh, then I guess the next most important part would be talking about Bernie. He is like seen not as not half as for being so important to the plot. He's only seen maybe about as much as Verna, right? In this film, he's probably, probably got less. About, uh, I think, yeah, you're probably right because uh, he he has a lot more screen time at the end. Yeah, uh, but like his role, I didn't pick up the first time I watched, or like I, the only time I watched it, that he and the Mink is it played he by the Steve mink? Buscemi. Yep, and uh, the and Dane. the Dane are in a love triangle. Yes, and that's where a lot of the like strife and uh, like. I don't even know spawns from um, at the heart uh, of that's this a, story. That's implied to be a big reason why Dane wants to kill uh, Bernie so bad. Oh, in my jealousy. Opinion. Yeah. Oh. Oh. I never even picked up on that. Honestly. I completely yeah, wow. missed it too. I feel shitty. <laughs> like uh, that's fascinating in its own way. I guess. See, I just kind of like I looked at the Dane and I was just like, this guy just wants to whack everybody because he was trying to get rid of Bernie. He was trying to get rid of Tom once they'd set up a deal and tried to double cross him anyways. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Uh, Dane hates Tom 
Um, they have an interesting parallel relationship. Uh, well, yeah, like as the I won't say right and left hand, but they're both right hand men to the leaders to of the these, opposing factions. Yeah, right? to the leader of these opposing uh, gang factions, these gang families controlling the city. Mm-hmm. Um, Bernie, at the middle of it all, I want to talk about his role in the story because he like he reveals something to Tom about Tom. And it's his own undoing, right? Yes. He's like, hey, look inside your heart. And he fools him once with that. Fools him once, you know, this shame is, on him. This uh, is after Tom defects to Casper, um, sort of by necessity, because Leo, he tells Leo about Verna in an attempt to um, get uh, Verna's hooks out of Leo, basically. He says, listen, I've been sleeping with Verna. Uh, Leo kicks his ass, kicks him out. Um, he doesn't have any other choice but to defect to Casper. And this is where the movie sort of sets up the idea that maybe he's a double agent for Leo. Maybe he was working with Leo all along. Leo believes that by the end of the movie. It's not true. Uh, he never had any plan uh, except <laughs> to survive by doing what he had to do, like everybody in this movie does. Um, but the the sort of the bones that he has to make to make his in with Casper is to kill Bernie. It's sort of poetic, right? It's like, this was the inciting incident, like, your your man, Leo, uh, went to war with us over this kid, now you're his right-hand man, you're gonna bump off Bernie. So he leads him out to Miller's Crossing, they're alone in the woods, he's got the gun up to Bernie's head, Bernie is saying, um, look into your heart, you're not like these animals, you don't have to do this, look into your heart, he says it like 300 times. Very, very good panic performance by John Turturro. Yes, this is John Turturro's first uh, performance with the Coens. We might have said that already. Which is Uh, fantastic. Yeah, taking some great direction there. Um, But what is it about Bernie that that makes him so adept at convincing somebody like Tom to like not to not obey his inner instinct, his inner like violent gangster, and to instead spare Bernie's life? I think part of it it goes to like what we've been talking about, where. Tom is at this crossroads where he's like trying to weigh between having this heart that he said not to have and like actually having it. And, and Bernie puts that out on the table, Mm -hmm. right? He, he, especially his position as Verna's brother. It was like, like this, this kid and Bernie is younger than Tom significantly, it seems. But this, this kid is representative of what Tom wants is this idea that maybe Tom can have a soul. Maybe Tom, uh, really is a man of of reason and principle and sophistication. Maybe he does have his hat uh, and doesn't have to chase it. Uh, and and um, Bernie sets this up as he's the the exception, right? Like he's he's the kid who is not touched by all of this and who can be. He said it's just in my nature to be a hustler, but like I'm just a um, I don't have. Uh, sort of an ulterior motive like i've never betrayed a friend i've never done this or that and yeah, like, he's like i just sell information i've never killed anyone right i'm i'm just a i'm just a kid i'm new at this like like you have to and so like he packages letting bernie free as this sort of like see you really weren't an animal you really were better than all this yeah but uh, there's a virtuous side right to any of these characters right is like he he sells Tom on this and Tom thinks to himself like he has this moment of grace where he's like yeah like maybe if I let Bernie go like I can be with Verna and like I can be the person I want to be uh, I can I can be a person who despite living in this this terrible amoral world I am a person of principle so he lets Bernie go 
obviously that backfires on him because Bernie is as canny <laughs> and true dicked by this yeah. as anyone, right? <laughs> and he ends up using the very fact that Tom let him go as blackmail against Tom to sort of gain leverage over him. Uh, it is a perfect the Bernie situation. It is a perfect storm of all of those things, and also just like the fact that he is like willing to to grovel even. F- falsely so um he's willing to emote like we don't see an emotional breakdown from anybody else in this movie in that kind of way giving ground in that way yeah uh and and um subverting this power dynamic that everyone has in this movie where never let them see you cry never let them see you right exactly like you are in charge as long as people think you're in charge as long as you present that you're in charge whereas like bernie and that window is very he's you know what you got me like he's breaking the system correct or convincingly breaking the system, and to, but he's using the system, of course. Yeah. As wow, guys, yeah, it's a really good movie. It's a really good movie. I gave this a four on Letterboxd, and I was thinking I you might want to bring that back up. Yeah, because that's a it's a good movie. Yeah. Um, and that is also the breaking point for Tom, right? Like, like Tom finally seeing that even Bernie, even this this person who seemed to break the system, who seemed to like give ground and um, like put the tiger on the table so to speak um what a weird metaphor that's really that that's pretty that's good a phrase. Okay. go ahead it is a phrase just don't oh, call it i'll take your word for it <laughs> um right. so we put the tiger on the he table. ups the ante there we go that was a better version <laughs> but i like tiger on table it is pretty good tiger on table uh it's my favorite t-i-t I'm really earning my stripes here tonight tiger on table no t-o-t yeah i was gonna say let's i know letters pronounce these out uh i want to talk about because I forget who just brought up Miller or uh, Crossroads. Was it Eric? You mentioned that yes. like this place is, that Miller's Crossing is a crossroads. <laughs> it's also a fucking graveyard. <laughs> Holy shit, guys! Like just the thematic resonance of a place where like life and death decisions are made. Somebody, at least Bernie, using like the tools of his trade to manipulate somebody who's far superior to him in like every respect of this game. You would uh, think. You would think, but, I mean, superior in rank, anyway. And how much does rank really play to that superiority in effect, rather than just as uh, as a front, as a, as a, as right, a facade? Right, because the game isn't real, right? And that's that's the thing that, that breaks Tom, is that Tom sees that um, the fact that Bernie could do that and still be a, an operator shows that there really wasn't any of the things that he thought there were. Mm-hmm. He wasn't really friends with... Leo or like Verna, like all of this game and the the fluid position that he took up, he was fooling himself, um, and that's that's the the t- terrifying irony of this game, right? That's that's why the powerful people break down when they get to the top, is that you realize at a certain point that you are fooling yourself too. Um, a line that people keep coming back to in this movie, um, Tom himself says it is, nobody knows anybody not that oh. well. And they're yep. talking about themselves. That was your letterbox review. Yeah, it was. And uh, it's, it's like my great, favorite line. I great think. line. I had um, that sitting on my notes. I said that this was important because yeah. of all the reasons we're talking about, and it came up multiple right. times. And he's talking about himself, right? Like it's the idea that that like in this this fluid um, world of, or this world of fluid allegiances and um, backstabs and betrayals, none of us are the people that we aspire to be. Um, it, we can't be. And the intersection of that is usually death yes is usually again miller's crossing it's a place where like these two warring concepts collide and it's usually people die and are buried right it's like the 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 mafia's go-to spot to whack some guy you know it's the spot 
And it's not it's not just death, it's also the, like the dissolution of whatever you wanted. It's the mm-hmm. hat, right? It's the hat blowing away. Like it, it, there's a reason why in the dream they're in Miller's Crossing and he sees the hat blow away from him. And uh Mer, uh Verna says in she like she had the dream herself. Uh tries to fill in the blank where he says, I had this dream where I had a hat and it blows away from him. And she says, and you chased after it. And when you got to it, it wasn't what you thought it was. It wasn't a hat anymore. It had changed into something else. And then he says, no, it was just a hat. And I didn't chase it because there's nothing more ridiculous than a man chasing his hat. Uh, and it, an important uh, addition. She not only says something different, but I think also something better. Oh, really? Maybe I'm misremembering, but... But but that's sort of her. She she sees she interprets the dream better than he does, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, totally. Like she sees she knows him, how dreams work. She sees him <laughs> for what he is more than he does. Yeah. Is that like she's like, oh, I see. Your central anxiety is that this thing you've been chasing after wasn't what you thought it was at all, and you aren't who you thought you were. And yep. he says, no, actually, I'm cool because I know not to chase after that. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and for me, that's why that line was so important. Nobody knows anybody not that well was because it was dual purpose because mm-hmm. it spoke to, like you were saying, how internally they don't know themselves, but also because using that externally is like a mob way. It's like you can't trust anybody. You don't that's know exactly anybody. Right. And, and you But gotta... like that's that's how the external reflects the internal. Right. right. Is that like you can't operate in a world where nobody trusts anybody mm. and trust yourself. It's all it about ethics. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. Thank you, Casper. Like you, to to live in this world is to have your interiority break down. There can't be another way. You mm-hmm. can't have your cake and eat it too, so to speak. Damn. Tiger on the table. This is a very Hit good it. movie. Uh, any other lingering thought? I I wanted to mention that Trey Wilson, who played uh, I don't know if Cody's nodding at me. I think he knows what I'm about to yeah, say. Yeah, go ahead. I I know you don't respond super well to people like visually trying to communicate things to you while you're talking. So that's I'll, fine. I'll try to not uh, do that. It's it's text now. That's not even subtext. <laughs> uh, Trey Wilson, who played Nathan Arizona in uh, Raising Arizona, was set to play Leo in this movie. Oh. And, and died two days before principal filming. Oh. Oh wow. So then that's they brought in Albert Finney. Um, yeah, I mean, not a bad like second place. Yeah, like if you gotta have somebody waiting in the wings, it might as well be Albert, Albert Finney. Finney. Yeah, but, that yeah. does suck though. I'm just trying to imagine like how different that character would have been. I don't, he I only know totally different energy. Oh, I, yeah. Yeah. I only know Trey Park, Trey um, Wilson Parker. Fuck, I don't even watch South Park. Woof. Uh, is that Trey Parker? Yeah, Matt Park? Stone and Trey Parker. I think. I yeah. fucking hate South Park with my heart and Me life. Too. Um, well, I'm sorry, Eric, I, if you like it. No, fortunately, this is not a South Park podcast, so we can say those <laughs> well, things. Well, he's teaching me how to podcast. <laughs> teach me how to podcast. Uh, teach me, teach me how to podcast. Oh, Trey Wilson. Um, a few other casting uh, notes to potentially you know, entertain your imaginations. Um, Richard Jenkins auditioned for uh, this movie for role, a role in Raising Arizona and also Fargo. Ooh. He obviously didn't get any role in any of those movies uh he did uh, um richard jenkins is amazing um he he eventually hey he eventually got his role in the man who wasn't there and he didn't even need to audition so really they just pulled him in uh, sympathy vote um the other um i think dynamic uh, casting note that makes me super happy and also kind of sad um we talked about the dana a little bit j.e freeman does a really great job of playing such a menacing man he looks like a great dane on two legs that motherfucker yeah he's upright scooby-doo for sure a great dane a great eddie (laughs) um i wish you could see jason's eyebrows 
I mean, I they're, do too. they're great eyebrows in general. Um, in any case, uh, Peter Stormare was originally in mind for the role, and they were going to call him the Swede. Oh, my <laughs> God. Wow. So you're telling me this movie could have been even better. <laughs> right. And, again, not Somehow. to take anything That's away from... That's where the extra half star comes from here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no not Peter Stormare. <laughs> I only give five stars to Peter Stormare movies. <laughs> not to say, again, not to take anything away from J.E. Freeman, who was great. fucking amazing. Yes. Um, but Peter Stormare, pretty amazing dude. He got his chance later on, six years later in Fargo. Yeah. He probably said more words in Fargo than he would have said in this movie. He had 18 lines in that movie, I think I read. In Fargo? Yeah. Gold Dern. Which almost seems like too many. Yeah. Because a lot of them are just like, we go to Pancake House. (laughs) Pancake House. (laughs) Pancake House, that's right. Um... Peter Stormare, we'd love to have you on the pod. This yeah, is very come on the pod, please, Peter Stormare. Peter Stormare. I follow you on Twitter, please. Extremely pro Peter Stormare. Does he tweet as often as he speaks in Fargo or more or less? What are we calling our P- Peter Stormare fan group? St- the Storm. I mean, yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, yeah. First I, passes. I, I can think of a completely non- uh, sensitive or um, a name that's not going to really raise any issues in today's political climate. If we just call it the Daily Stormer, <laughs> we could probably really mm. like put, just push out a picture. We're reappropriating it. <laughs> <laughs> no yes. such thing as bad press. <laughs> We're getting dangerously close to some really terrible things. Here. Uh, I my last lingering thought, I guess, is that like um, the this movie's depiction of homosexuality, and uh, again, like. I, I say again because we talked about sexism in Raising Arizona, but um, I'm maybe not qualified um, as a straight cis man um, to speak to this. Um, I think it's nuanced in that it's interesting that homosexuality isn't demonized in this movie. It's treated as something else that could provide leverage or that could provide the sort of fly in the ointment that undoes the system. Um, in the same way that that sex and relationships generally can. Right, but, um, but I've, I'm uncomfortable with Bernie being the crocodile tears sort of man who is willing and able to subvert the power structure to his own ends. Being a gay guy, hmm. um, that reads as weird to me. It reads as sort of like the suggestion that, that gay people are fundamentally duplicitous or fundamentally capable of, of manipulating using their emotions. Right. Which is also something that we talked about in The Man Who Wasn't There. I was going to say, it's not like the first time right. this has happened with a Coen With film. a Coen Brothers movie. Yeah. So it's a recurring problem. It is. Um, which is like a yellow card at least, right? Right. Uh, again, yeah. again, as a cis straight white man um, looking at it, and th- that's a totally valid like uh, criticism of the way that they use that character in particular. But then I consider that they're like between the Mink, the Dane, and Bernie, I mean, and Leo... Uh, Verna and Tom. There are two uh, love triangles in this movie, and and they're both equally disastrous, right? Right. They are like they're treated pretty much the same with like completely. I mean, it's it's unfortunate that uh, Bernie is demonized and vilified throughout as like that character. But uh, on the other side of that coin, there are two characters, two gay characters that are not like they're they're playing their roles. Like the Dane is just a big angry man trying to suppress like, um, yeah, maybe that is bad. <laughs> Maybe it is pretty mm-hmm. bad. 
Well, I, I, I look maybe at those other two characters in that specific triangle as maybe not as poorly thought through representation as... Or, or at the very least, there's nuance, right? Uh, I mean, like, the, you're talking about nuance. I think Eric and uh, Cody and I did not pick up at all on the fact that that was a, like, right. healthy love triangle, right? Sure. It, I guess, yeah, to maybe lend something to um, Harry, your point, like, the, the fact that this triangle is full of characters who are maybe... Not to say that they're like necessarily less actualized as characters just because that's how like main characters and supporting characters work but just like bernie is the emotive character in this movie uh the dane is the angry character in this movie um maybe there's something there to just like the assigning of like one very uh demonstrative trait to these people and uh, the mink i mean he has one scene yeah the mink has one scene steve buscemi nails it he's he got that what one and a half does he have his mutilated body is left oh yeah yeah that definitely doesn't yeah Um, and there's also the scene where he's on the phone where tom's calling him or whatever you can't even really hear his voice there right no right unless you have subtitles Uh, yeah, Steve Buscemi got that role because he can talk faster than anyone, and that's what the character of the main Steve Buscemi uh, rules. Yeah, so there's prob- there's almost certainly something there. But I mean, like, at least there's not one gay person in this movie, right? Like, at least yeah. we we have multiple sources of representation. Yeah, it doesn't feel like tokenism, and like you said, it is more nuanced. And, and like, than right. and uh, Bernie and Dane, uh, irrespective of their issues. Um, they're two very different men who operate in very different ways. And, and they so, have the like, same problem. Yeah. Uh, everybody has problems in this movie, yeah. too, though, right? So, um, anyway, that that's, they do. that's something worth talking about and worth yeah. considering and maybe uh, reading about from people who are uh, smarter than I am. Yeah, what is you guys' main way to go? Like, when I watch a movie at the Trilon, I want to read stuff after it, uh, or any movie, I guess. And I don't want just, like... Here's what happened in the movie type reviews, or uh, like the Roger Eberts of the what world. What I usually do is I half remember uh, text I read in college, uh, and then I try to apply it forcibly to whatever I'm uh, watching, and that's how I come to uh, my understanding of movies. I'm I'm uh, handicapped in that respect because I didn't read in college anything at I all. I couldn't read, to be fair. It wasn't a lack of trying; it was lack. Shout of. out to <laughs> Harry and Aaron who actually taught Jason to read for this podcast. It was a crash course, but it was great. We needed Thank you. a labor of love, yeah. truly. A labor of love. Fuck! Yes! Oh. <laughs> I think that's just about as good a place, <laughs> a place to leave out as any. Anybody dredging up any last thoughts from the take bin? Um, I mean... To take it, the dredging up thoughts from the take bin, back to the tank mines, boys. <laughs> well, let's get back to the tank now. Um... I, there was one thing I thought that was interesting was, um, as far as casting, it would, what really brought me to this was how Verna had so much like presence off-screen versus on-screen. And there's one character's name who popped up a lot who was never like explicitly on-screen, who was Lazar. Oh, yeah. That the, name came the, up. The debtor for the, the, he Tom. He was the debtor for Tom. And yep. it's it's interesting because his name comes up a lot and he has a presence in this world, but we don't actually see him while simultaneously there's this good connection between him and Tom. And he's like the sword of Damocles hanging over Tom's head. Yeah, because yeah. when like when he's Tom's going back to his apartment and Lazar's goons come back there, the line that really stuck out to me there was he said we didn't have to break anything. Yeah. Oh yep. man, I love <laughs> <Green> characterization. <laughs> uh, he he punches. They punch Tom in the stomach like 
uh, like twenty times, times yeah. and Tom's lying there on the ground, and, and he goes, uh, uh, "Yeah, he told him he knows that we're still friends. You don't. We, he said we didn't have to break anything." And Tom goes, uh, "Sure, uh, tell Lazar no hard feelings." And he goes, "Ah, Christ, Tom, he knows that." <laughs> <laughs> so funny, like like Tom's like spitting up blood basically on the ground because they just shattered yeah. and destroyed his kidneys. <laughs> That is definitely one of my favorite things like a good screenplay does. Whenever they build up a character who either is not shown ever or who is shown like much later and is a stronger character for for that fact, for that building up through like dialogue. Which is huge for every character. Right. Like, yes. When we see Verna, we're like, wow, that's Verna. Or like when we see Bernie especially, it's like, oh, that's Bernie. Correct. Yeah. Like this guy that we've heard so much about, like that's that's him like in it everything makes sense and like in this case of lazar in particular they do that like not only do they mention his name about 50 times in this movie because tom is like increasingly in debt to him yeah but he is like represented through surrogates who are just there to beat the shit out of him and shoot the shit with him you know yeah. it's just so so you guys want to go watch miller's crossing right now? i will probably watch it again <laughs> i it's, wouldn't be i still opposed. haven't rented at home i'm I mean, upset that uh criterion has not put out i mistakenly thought criterion did have a miller's crossing edition they do not i'm surprised at how little coen brother stuff is actually on there and the choices that they made right inside lewin davis is on there i don't think oh brother has uh bl- so blood simple um uh-huh. yeah inside yeah, lewin davis, davis uh going backwards uh, oh the worst coen brothers movie and the best coen brothers movie <sighs> Ooh. I found I found a nugget down in the take mines, boys. <laughs> well, golly gee. Post this thing up and see what we can get It's more. Harry the Prospector back again in the take mines. <laughs> Bring it to the surface. Let's talk about it. Oh, shit. The canary's dead in this one. We got to get out now. <laughs> pull, boys. Pull. The episode's over now. Oh, God. <laughs> it's a truck. It's on, the, on the front, it says, Miller's Crossing is a fascist film. Oh, my God. It's about a thank you, thank society. you very much for listening to Try Love. I am Jason. I'm Cody. I'm Harry. And I'm Eric and Peter Stormare. We're waiting for you. Do you want to hit it? <laughs> hit it. <laughs>